The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Paul's epistle to the Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I am getting a late start today, but I will tell you that here in Berean Baptist Church, we believe the most important thing that we do is to preach the Word of God. Uh, The worship service is centered on the Word of God. We love the singing. Singing is great, and I'm glad that we were able to do that. But I'm afraid we're not going to shorten the message because we've had more singing today. We still have to expound the Word of God because that's the thing that we've come here to do. So Romans chapter 5, and it's our privilege to open God's Word today to speak to you on the subject of the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Now in our study of Matthew that we've had for many years now, about six or seven years, we're closing in on the final days of Jesus' life. And in that series, we've been discussing the public trials of Jesus that finally led to his condemnation and then to the death of the cross. Easter season progresses through those last days of Jesus' life, and actually there are some who even started preparing for Easter about 40 days ago with a season of Lent and a time of fasting. Uh, Preceding Lent, for some Christians, there is a Christians, there is a period of debauchery Because next comes those 40 days of fasting when people are supposed to live like Christians. Well, I will tell you that we don't observe 40 days of Lent. And the reason that we don't is because we believe that we ought to be Christians 365 days a year, not for 40 days a year. Uh, Some Christians celebrate Palm Sunday. That was last week. Uh, That marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on this last week. And... uh, Sunday, last Sunday, as I said, was Palm Sunday. And so throughout this past week, churches have had various activities. till they come to Friday, which is called Good Friday, which most people believe is the day that Jesus was crucified. Next comes Sunday, and that would be this Sunday, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, although we've not reached the resurrection in our study of Matthew, I have already told you that I don't actually believe that Christ was crucified on Friday. I believe that he was crucified on Thursday, a Thursday crucifixion, because I think that more accords with Jesus' own statement that he would be three days and three nights in the tomb. But we can argue about that. We can argue about whether it was a Thursday crucifixion or a Friday crucifixion. But the thing that we cannot argue about is the day that he arose from the dead. We know that that was Sunday. The Bible says that he arose on the first day of the week, and first century Christians met on the first day of the week to commemorate Christ's resurrection. Now, the resurrection is a very critical Christian doctrine. The Bible is very clear about this, that we are justified because of Christ's resurrection. Now, just before our reading here in chapter 5 of Romans, The Apostle Paul wrote in the fourth chapter, in verse 25, who was delivered, speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So he says that Jesus was delivered up for our sins 
and he was raised from the dead for our justification. Now, justification is also a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. And so we see what Paul says, you cannot be justified unless there is a literal resurrection of Christ from the dead. But I want you to notice today that when the Bible speaks about salvation, it, it, it's not just a past event. Now, we often talk about salvation as a past event, that there was a time, there was a place, a particular hour and a day that you know that you are saved from your sins. That's the day that someone gave you the gospel of Christ and you trusted in Jesus Christ and then you were justified from all of your sins. And we tend to think about that as a thing that happens in the past, but more often the Word of God teaches that salvation is an ongoing event. Salvation is something that's happening right now as well. And I think it's interesting that in that great resurrection chapter of the Apostle Paul of 1 Corinthians 15 that we read a moment ago, that it begins with a presentation of the gospel and it tells us there that we are being saved in this life as we go through this life living for Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2 begins this way, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And the literal rendering there of verse number 2 is by which ye are being saved. And so what that does, it brings salvation into the present tense, and it makes it a present reality. Now I want to show you that the Bible also teaches another great doctrine related to the resurrection, and that is the doctrine of preservation. You are being saved, which means because of the resurrection, you are forever preserved in your faith. Now, you've probably heard that expressed before as once saved, always saved. That, that's a doctrine that's been a, a tenet of the, of the Baptist faith. Used to be that when someone were to ask you, what church do you go to? And you say, oh, I go to a Baptist church. Well, they would say, almost immediately, the answer would come back, oh, you're somebody who believes in once saved, always saved. And that has been something that Baptists believed all the way back since the time of Christ. But it doesn't seem to be as much a marker of Baptist today as it used to be. One of our members approached a, a Baptist pastor in Santa Rosa a few years ago and ask him what he thought about this doctrine of once saved, always saved. What did he believe about the eternal security of the believer? And this pastor said, does it matter? Well, I want to tell you absolutely it does matter. It does matter because the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that it matters. Our preservation is real because Jesus arose from the dead. And if we don't believe in preservation, then we might as well throw out the doctrine of the resurrection and also our justification in Christ as the core fundamentals of our faith. Now, in the text here of Romans chapter 5, Paul demonstrates this truth of preservation because of the resurrection. Now, Paul was a master theologian, and um, he used logical arguments to present his case. In other words, what Paul shows here is the foolishness of believing that a person could actually lose his salvation once he has been justified in Christ. 
So he presents for us in Romans 5 a logical argument for the preservation of our faith in Christ based upon the resurrection. Now I'd like to go to the text and let's see how the Apostle Paul makes this case for the eternal security of believers. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is spread abroad, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, I want to call your attention particularly to, uh, to verses 8 through 10. You've already seen there in verse number 1 that the apostle says that we are justified by faith. And what follows that is Paul's arguments for these blessings that are secured to us because of that justification. And the chief blessing of the passage here is that we are saved from the wrath of God. Now that's actually what salvation is all about. It's what our preservation is all about, that we are saved from the wrath of God. Or as Paul says it here also, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Now, verse number 9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, let me just say that on Easter, you'll not hear very many pastors or churches that will think of this, think of the resurrection in this way, the consequences of Easter as being that we are saved from the wrath of God. And the reason that you don't hear it is because there aren't very many people anymore who believe there is actually any wrath in God. Most people don't believe that. No one believes hell and judgment anymore, it seems. But that is exactly what the resurrection is about. Because Christ arose from the grave, we can be saved from the wrath of God. Now, there's an excellent statement here in these verses that shows that our security is in Christ. Uh, if I had time, I could take you to multiple verses that express the, the same thought using different evidences. One in particular would be Romans chapter 8, where we find that our security is based in the eternal electing grace of God, that before the world was ever created, that God had already secured eternal salvation because he chose us to us to, to it. And there is this golden chain of security that's told to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And there we have the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. And that's an excellent argument. And many have said that the argument of, 
of God's eternal election, that, that is the real touchstone of our security. And we rejoice in God because of that argument. That is a true argument. But in this particular section, Paul gives another argument for security, and it's based upon the resurrection. And that's where I want to focus today because it is the day of Lord's resurrection. Now let me show you how Paul develops this argument. As I said, he, he is a master logician, and he uses this tactic of logical argument to prove his point. Now, I have two points for you today in the sermon, and these two points provide for us the warp and the woof of the argument of preservation based upon the resurrection. Now, there are two statements. The first of these is that we are preserved because if Christ did the greater, he will not fail to do the lesser. We are preserved because if Christ did the greater, he will not fail to do the lesser. Now, Paul's argument, or his method of argument, is to, is to establish that if Christ did the most difficult work, if he did the greatest work, then he'll not fail to do that which is less difficult, or we would say any lesser work. Now, if you're a student of debate, uh, this is called in Latin terms an a fortiori argument. A fortiori, and that actually means for stronger reason. A fortiori means for stronger reason. And this is basically what it is, that the conclusion that follows the argument is accepted because there is a stronger reason for it than an already accepted conclusion. Now, I hope that hasn't confused you. And if it does, just hold on for a minute. I'm going to explain it to you. Now, here, then, is the already accepted conclusion. We find it in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now there in verse number 8, we find our position before we were justified by faith. It says that we were sinners. And it said that God demonstrated his love for us when we were sinners. Now just to clue you in and help you out here, sin by definition is the transgression of God's law. And the Bible says that we are lawbreakers, and that's what sets us up for the need of justification. We are guilty of breaking God's law, and justification is this legal process that changes us from being guilty sinners to pardoned sinners. Justification changes us from a position of having to suffer the penalty of God's law to a position where we are right and we are accepted with God. Now, God's penalty for sin, and every one of us was under this penalty, his penalty for sin is the everlasting fires of hell. And the way that we escape that penalty is believing that Christ died to pay that penalty for us, that his shed blood upon the cross was satisfaction to the penalty of God's wrath. And we receive the same satisfaction of our sins in God because of Christ and our belief in him. Now, the Bible also teaches that not only are we sinners, but that we are God's enemies. In other words, we sin against God with hatred. Our, our, our sins are not accidental. We are hostile to God. This is what theologians call being an aggravated condemnation. That means that we were defiant of God, we rejected God's ways, and we wanted nothing to do with Him. Now, I know that there 
are many people that say, Oh, I never hated God. I've always loved God. Doesn't everybody love God? Well, the Bible says we don't love God. We love ourselves. We are actually in love with the God that we have invented. We're in love with the God whose standards are no higher than the standards that we can reach. And so the God that we love is actually self, not the God of the Bible. So Scripture says that we were enemies, and whether you accept that or not really doesn't matter a whole lot because that's God's assessment of it, not mine. God says you are his enemy. But the Scripture also says that in that state of hostility, that in the state of being a lawbreaker, that Christ was willing to die for us. And it was not when we were perfectly agreeable with him, not when we said, God, you're right about everything, and I'm going to trust you because you know everything and you're right about me. That's not when Christ died for us. The Scripture says he died for us while we were yet sinners. He loved us in that condition. And the Bible also says that the condition is so bad that our hearts are desperately wicked. If we had been in the crowd that day when, when they cried out to crucify Christ, we would have lent our voices to that mob. We would have said, crucify him, crucify him. Now that fact has already been established in Paul's previous arguments to the Romans. In the first through the third chapters, Paul labored to establish this fact that we are God's enemies. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. He said that in chapter 3. And it was in that state that Christ was willing to go to the cross, that he was willing to be beaten and humiliated, to be mocked, and to have his hands driven through with those nails and his feet driven through with those nails to the cross. But then... Paul comes along with this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. Jesus could have sent legions of angels to deliver him and to end that suffering, but instead he chose to endure the cross and to suffer that shame in order that we might be forgiven of our sins. So he took the punishment of God's wrath for us. And so we see then in verse number 1 that we have been justified by faith, and because of that, we have peace with God. That means the hostility has ended. No longer are we the enemies of God. Now, do you see how great the love of God is? Look what God had to do to bring us to this place of justification. He sent his son to die, and he put him through the most agonizing, torturous death that could ever be suffered. A terrible death was imposed upon God's most precious possession, and that was his own dear son. Now that, that's the great thing in Paul's argument. The greatest, most costly thing has been done for us when God gave his son. So Paul's argument is this. If God was willing to do that for us when we were his enemies, what will he do for us now that we've been reconciled to him by the blood of Christ? Now look at verse number 1 again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have peace. All hostilities against God have been ended. They're all taken away, and now we are his friends. And so, if he was willing to do so much for us when we were his enemies, then what will he do for us now that we have become his friends? Now, you see, it doesn't take as much effort to do the latter as it did the former. He was willing to do the greater. Then why isn't he willing to do the lesser? 
If God would save us when we were enemies, then he'll certainly do everything to keep us saved now that we are his friends. Now, that's the basic argument. We, we, we've accepted that first part of the argument, haven't we? We're sinners. We accept the fact that God loved us when we were sinners. So we accept the first conclusion, then surely we have to accept the stronger conclusion that God will continue to save us now that we are his friends. So do you see the argument? It's greater to lesser. It's a fortiori. We accepted that first conclusion, and so we must accept the second because it's based on a stronger reason. If he would save us when we were his enemies, how much more will he save us now that we are his friends? Verse number 9, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we're preserved because if Christ did the greater, he'll not fail to do the lesser. Now let's look to see how the resurrection comes into play. Verse number 10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now this is the second point. We are preserved because of the ministry of Christ's life. We are preserved because of the ministry of Christ's life. Now, I, I am happy that we have visitors today. You may not know that I strive to be theological and doctrinal in my preaching. I've just mentioned a moment ago the doctrine of justification as being a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. And that doctrine requires more explanation than I can give you today. Now, there's this little event that maybe you've heard about. It was called the Reformation. It happened about 500 years ago. And although Baptists were before the Reformation, and we believed in justification by faith alone before the Reformation, yet that doctrine didn't really come to light and become well known for Western civilization until the Protestant Reformation. And then the doctrine of justification by faith alone was put on the map, so to speak, for all the world to see. Now, just briefly... The way that we're justified is not as Roman Catholicism teaches. We are justified by faith that God transfers the goodness of Jesus Christ to our account. Now, we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. And so we don't have anything that we can offer God at all. We don't have anything to offer him but brokenness and shame. But God is looking for perfection. Now, although you might not think that you're too bad of a sinner because you've never committed the big ones, that God says you're still guilty. God wants perfection. And the only one who ever lived a perfect life was Jesus Christ. And he lived that life so that he could transfer his goodness to us by faith. Now, that, that's essentially justification in a nutshell. It's the transfer of Christ's righteousness to you when you believe. Now, that's why you could never, ever be saved by the good things that you do. You're saved by the good things that Christ did. Now, that's justification then. Now, look at verse number 10. Now, we're tempted to look at this phrase in verse number 10. We shall be saved by his life as referring to that perfect life that Christ lived on the earth. And we're tempted to think, well, here is the means of justification, that we are saved by Christ's life, the life that he had on earth. And I'll tell you, that is absolutely true. It is absolutely true that we are justified 
because of the life that Christ lived on this earth. But that's not what Paul has in mind in this particular verse. He's speaking here about what Christ is doing for us right now, not what he did while he lived on the earth. Now, this isn't about his present life. It's about, or about his past life, rather, on the earth. It's about his present life and what he's doing as the resurrected Lord. He has a present ministry that keeps you saved. Now, going back to the previous argument, if, if Christ could do so much for us in his death, if he could save us by dying for us, how much more can he do for us now that he's living? If he did so much for his enemies in his death, how much can he do for his friends now that he is living? So if we're reconciled by a dead Christ, then how much more are we reconciled by a living Christ? Now notice how Paul says this. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Much more. That's the same language of the a fortiori argument. For the stronger reason, we shall be saved from wrath by his life. So we're going to reach our home in heaven. We're not going to lose our salvation because Christ is living. How much more will he do for his friends in life than he did for his enemies in death? Now, do you see how important the resurrection is? Paul doesn't leave this resurrection argument on the table as if he doesn't need this. No, we're justified by the resurrection also, which means that our future salvation has been guaranteed by the living Christ. Now, what is this present ministry of Christ? Well, Hebrews has another way of expressing it. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7, if you would. Hebrews is filled with great arguments about the superiority of Christ. He is better than angels. He is better than Moses and better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Old Testament priest. And that's what chapter 7 is about. He is a better priest. He has a better priesthood than Old Testament priests that were descended from Aaron. Hebrews 7.13, if you'll look at that verse, it says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Now what he's talking about there is that, that Jesus was not a Levite. He was not from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. And all of the Old Testament priests were from that same tribe of Levi. But Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. That's verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Now let me break into the author's argument at verse 23. He's arguing for this better priesthood, the one of Christ, and he explains that Old Testament priests are inferior to Christ. And why are they inferior? Because they're all dead. Now watch this. Christ is not dead. He's the living priest. Verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, that is Jesus, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost... You might want to underline that. Save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, you see this? Christ has a better priesthood because he is alive. He came back to life, and because of that, he is the eternally living priest. 
Now, there are many, many Old Testament priests. They had to be replaced, and that's because they died. But Jesus is alive forever, so there never needs to be another priest but him. And his ministry today is to make intercession for the people of God. And that ministry goes on forever and forever and forever. Now, what does a priest do? He makes sacrifices. That's what they did in the Old Testament. The priest made sacrifices for the people. They did it at the tabernacle and then at the temple. So every year there was a day of atonement. There was a day that God had to be satisfied for the sins of the people. And that went on year after year after year after year. But then Jesus came, and Jesus was that sacrifice that satisfied God forever. The sacrifice that he made was better than all of the Old Testament sacrifices. He satisfied God for all the sins of all of his people forever. And he is a living priest that continues to administer the effects of that eternal sacrifice upon his people. Now, when Christ died and arose from the grave, he became the eternally living priest who applies the blood of his sacrifice perpetually. And so forever, what Christ is doing is he's holding off the wrath of God from you. He has a present ministry where he keeps the wrath of God from anybody from making a charge against you. Now, even though you continue to sin in this life, there is none of us that's perfect. Yet Christ is always in heaven administering the effects of his sacrifice for you. So you continue to be saved because of what Christ is doing for you right now. Now, I don't have time to get into this argument at this point, but that's another reason that we believe that Christ died only for his people. And that's because he has this continuing ministry that's only for his people. So it couldn't be for anyone who is now or will be in hell. And so the assurance of your salvation is based upon what Christ is doing right now. You are being saved in the present life and you shall be saved from wrath in the future because Christ lives forever to make intercession for you. Now there's another great scripture that teaches the preservation of God's people because of the resurrection and intercession of Christ. So now if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, and I've already alluded to this chapter in reference to the sovereign plan of God from before the foundation of the world. I mean, there are so many arguments for eternal security that we're just here looking at one room of this great mansion of that security. So our focus here is the resurrection. Maybe sometime later we'll talk about other evidences. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, let's look at these verses. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that's risen again. Now there you see two components of that a fortiori argument. That Christ died to overcome the condemnation of God, that's the greater Reconciliation has been made by his death. And then comes the stronger reason. He is risen. So there's death and resurrection. That's the components of the a fortiori argument. And then comes the second part of our outline, which is the present ministry. He died and he's risen again to sit at the right hand of God 
to make intercession for us. Now that word intercession, that means to entreat. It means to stand between or it means to be the go-between, to be a mediator. In 1 John it says that we have an advocate with the Father, Christ the righteous. An advocate is one who entreats. An advocate is someone who pleads your cause. And that's what Christ is doing. He pleads your cause to the Father. Now notice the position that he has with his Father. He is at the right hand. So he was raised from the dead to sit at the right hand. And that means, the right hand means, that he is in the most exalted position. That the right hand is the place of the greatest power and authority. Whenever the Bible speaks of the exaltation of Christ in that way, it always has reference to the salvation of his people. And so the advocacy of Christ in heaven, his intercession, is to plead our case. And that case is based upon his own blood, the very thing that he gave to justify us. So he saves us from the wrath to come because he is continually pleading his blood. He's always standing there before the Father, telling him and showing him that we should be saved from the wrath to come because of what he's done for us. And you'll be blessed to know that God never refuses to hear Jesus Christ. He never refuses that perfect intercession so that Jesus could say to him while he was here, Father, I know that you hear me always. Well, how then can Christ intercede for us? It's because he's not in the tomb. If he's still dead, then there is no work for us. There is no present ministry. And he can't be our intercessor. And how valuable is that intercession? Well, it's so valuable that if there was ever a person that Christ died for that failed to get to heaven, then the intercession would be worthless. He doesn't have all power if he can't hold on to you. And so if he lost you, if he lost one, he could lose all. And that would make the death and the resurrection meaningless. Now let's think for a minute. What was Christ exalted to do? Well, he was raised to be an everlasting king. And what do kings do? Kings rule. Kings are the head of government. What does the government do? What's its purpose? Well, some think the government exists to tax you to death, and they may do that, but that's not the main purpose. The purpose of government is to provide for the welfare of the people. And we know that that purpose is exploited to the nth degree in this society. But aside from our particular problems, the purpose of government is social good and economic good. And then there's also protection that's provided by our government. Last fall, as you know, I had a, a wonderful opportunity to see the protection of our government firsthand when I took a cruise for seven days on a Navy destroyer. And I saw the might of the United States Navy, and I realized this United States Navy protects us all over the globe. We have the greatest Navy in the world. Well, Christ's government is perfect, and it's not going to do any less than good government's designed to do. And so socially, we have fellowship with God and his people. Economically, we have all of our needs met, and we have a great retirement plan in heaven. And then also... Uh, protection-wise, or for our protection, we have the Lord of hosts. We have the Lord Sabaoth. We have the captain of all of heaven's army, of all the angels that protect us from, from the wrath or, or from the wrath of God and from, from Satan. 
And so we are safe and secure. We are forever safe from the wrath to come. Now let me give you another scripture on intercession. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now mark that very well. He is in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. And the Bible says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, there, there's so much here. We need Easter next week and the next week and the next week to get into all this. And, in fact, we do have Easter every Sunday, don't we? We have time to explain all of these great doctrines of the faith. Romans eight thirty one to 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And if you look at those verses, that is another greater to lesser argument. The greater is God spared not his own son, and if God gave his greatest, then why would he spare to give the lesser? Why would he give us anything less if he gave us his son? Now, folks, if you can read these texts and still fear for your salvation, then I don't know what else I can do for you. I rest securely in the salvation that's given to me in Christ. He is alive, he lives to watch over me, and he brings me every step of the way to my heavenly home. When well, now comes the part you've been waiting for. How am I going to bring this message to a close? Well, I wish I had more time. Uh, we aren't having a service tonight, so if you'll permit me just to make a few observations for just a moment, this won't take very long. I'd like to show you why we must believe in preservation. Charles Simeon, who was a great preacher from the 19th century, made these points in his exposition of Romans chapter 5. And maybe next year we'll come back and expand these points. But just very briefly, these are things he said that we need to consider. What would happen if Christ were to leave his people to perish? What are the consequences of that? What if Christ cannot keep you saved? These are the reasons that Charles Simeon gave. Number one, he said, or this is what would happen. He said he would defeat all of his father's counsels. Well, that means that the eternal plan of God goes down the drain. God chose his people from eternity past. He sent his son to die for those that he chose. He justified them and predestined them to be conformed to Christ. And if they, if they perish, then all of that planning goes for nothing. His failed plans means that he can't be God because God never fails. Secondly, he would render void all he himself had done. Christ gave his life to ransom us. He died to pay for our sins. And if he couldn't keep us, then that would void the merits of his life and death. Now, he bought us with that exceedingly high price. The high price is the highest, or price is the highest that ever could be paid. That's his own perfect life. But if he loses us, then we would have to conclude that price wasn't high enough. It wasn't enough to purchase salvation because it can't guarantee us safe passage into heaven. Thirdly, he would forget all of the ends of his own exaltation. And why is Christ exalted? He's exalted to be the king over his people. Well, who's a king that doesn't have any subjects? Who's a king that can't protect those who serve him? Who's the greater king? Is that Christ or is that Satan? And so if Satan is able to snatch one away, 
then what's the purpose of Christ's exaltation? Now I'll give you a challenge here that if you can find one single verse in the Bible that says that Christ will not triumph over all of his enemies, I'll eat your King James Bible or I'll choke on your NIV or your ESV or whatever version that you use. Christ's kingdom is never defeated and there's a heaven for every one of his subjects. 1 John 5, 5, Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And then finally, if Christ should fail to secure his people, he would falsify his own great precious promises. Now there are many, many verses containing Christ's promises. We've read a few today. Every verse that you read on security is a verse of promise. But directly from the lips of the Savior himself, I don't think we could find anything better than what he said in John chapter 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Isn't that a great promise? Who here would want to argue with Jesus about what he said there? Would you ever want to argue with that? He loves his people so much. He gave his life for them. He continues to intercede for them in the resurrection. So why would you ever want to believe that Christ could lose even one person who's put his faith in him? All of it's possible because of the resurrection. Because if we're talking about a dead Jesus who's still in the tomb... None of this can happen. Paul said, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more for the stronger reason being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Much more we shall be saved by his life. And that life is the resurrection from the dead. Now, do you understand, then, how great this sacrifice of Jesus is? He died to bring you to God. You were his enemy. He died for you when you were his enemy. And he justified you by belief in him. You're now his friends. And what will he not do for you now that you are his friends? Now, I hope that you are a friend of Jesus. You can be if you trust him with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. He'll save you from the wrath to come, and he'll save you forever. Now, thank God for this. He raised Jesus from the dead, and because of that, he preserves us. You are being saved at this very moment because of the present ministry of Jesus Christ. He saves us forever because he lives forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we indeed thank you for this great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we're so thankful that he arose from the dead and because he lives, there's this continual intercession that he makes for us. No one could charge us with any sin. It's Christ that died for us. It's Christ that justified and nothing is greater than the justification that he has given. Lord, speak to your people today. Help us to be encouraged in the resurrection. 
And then, Lord, through things that I've said today, if there should be someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come to realize there is a wrath to come. There is wrath in God. None of us is perfect. And God's looking for perfection, and that perfection is in Jesus Christ. So open their eyes to the gospel of Christ, and may the Holy Spirit help them to believe today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.